Welcome listeners to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Today, we will be continuing our series through the Marxist lens with Professor Clyde Barrow, acknowledging the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder and the convulsions that America has experienced since that murder, our topic of discussion will be capitalism and race. What would Karl Marx have to say about the dynamics of a capitalist economy and race? My Marx 101 understanding is that Marx thought capitalism would do everything possible to distract an oppressed working class, the proletariat, from viewing the capitalist system as the cause of their disadvantaged conditions, that it would seek to demonize and thus divide the working class by, in essence, blaming the other for their problems. Certainly, the last thing the one percenters want is a unified biracial working class united in opposition to wage exploitation and wealth inequality. Professor Barrow, is there a kernel of truth to this? Well, I think that that's absolutely well said. You know, it's a difficult question when you ask, well, what would Marx say? You know, Marx does talk extensively about the capitalist class using things like the nationalist divides as a way to splinter the working class. And of course, it's always the interest of any ruling class to try to keep the working class divided because you disempower it in that way, you divert it from its mission to overthrow that system. And of course, you put them to fighting among themselves over the scraps that fall to the floor. Now that said, you know, it's an interesting question with respect to Marx because Marx himself did talk extensively about things like slavery, immigration, and colonialism. He actually wrote as a correspondent for the New York Daily Tribune on the Civil War in America. So he wrote extensively on the Southern slave system. However, the reality is we're, we're only just beginning to sort through what Marx thought on these particular issues and how issues of race would be integrated into his analysis of capitalism. So I'd suggest that probably some of the best thinking on this topic doesn't come from Marx directly, but comes more from uh, contemporary Marxists and Marxists who wrote after his death. And I'll just start with a couple of people, one of whom at least could be considered a Marxist in this country. And that's Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton, who wrote a book in 1967 called Black Power, The Politics of Liberation. Wow. It's it's really still today an excellent book. And one of the things that, that makes it really a, a paradigmatic book on this subject is that they are the first two people to introduce the concept of institutional racism, or what we sometimes now call structural racism. And what they were trying to argue was that racism in America or racism in the capitalist system is not so much an issue of individual attitudes, but rather it's an institutional system that reproduces itself regardless of what individual people might think. And so their concept was that racism is embedded within the very structures of American capitalism and probably global capitalism at this point, they would have argued as well. And as a consequence, you you can't attack the problem simply by convincing people that it's morally wrong to be a racist, but rather you have to attack the institutions and structures that reproduce the racist system. And that's a much more daunting task. And indeed, it's a much more revolutionary task. Is that what we're seeing today in the wake of George Floyd's murder, that something like 25 million Americans participated in protests regarding that murder. 
Is there a woke component to this now where people really are seeing the institutional aspects of racism in America? Yeah, I think we do seem to be at a turning point in this country. And I think one of the illustrations of that is that you and I, two old white guys, are, are talking about racism. That's probably something that wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. You're seeing this as a mass movement and as an interracial, intersectional mass movement, not just the black civil rights demanding that they be treated as equals. You're seeing very serious talk about police reform. You're seeing talk about educational inequality, economic inequality. And those are the kinds of institutions and structures, at least as a beginning, that we would have to talk about. And so I think this is really the first time in our our history, at least since Reconstruction, that we're really starting to talk about racism at an institutional level. Well, interestingly, you're quite right, but a little bit of background on myself. My mother was a Norman Thomas socialist in the 1950s and 1960s, and she was very, very attuned to racial inequality. And she took me, I think I was 13, down to the March on Washington for civil rights. I think it was 63 or 64. So as a 13 or 14-year-old, she dragged me down there, you know, willingly or whatever. But in my particular household, socialism and racial inequality was something I actually grew up with. Well, that's an interesting observation because, as you know, the New Deal, the liberal New Deal in the United States under Franklin Roosevelt, was really forged as an alliance of of the Northeastern and Midwestern labor movement with Southern Democrats. And the Southern Democrats, of course, were conservatives who wanted to maintain segregation and Jim Crow. And sort of one of the unstated principles of that New Deal alliance was a refusal to deal with issues of racial inequality, particularly in the South. And not coincidentally, it was really the left. You know, it was originally the Communist Party in the 1930s that took up the issue of racial inequality integration. Later, as you mentioned, the Norman Thomas Socialist Party moved in that direction. But the attack on racism to the degree that it has occurred has always come really from the left, or I should say the attack on institutional racism has always come from the left in the United States. Before Stokely Carmichael, who I did grow up with, obviously, in the 60s and followed fairly closely, wasn't there black figures like W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a socialist, but also, you know, of anti-racist, pointing out that a capitalism in America didn't work out. And I think he wrote in the 20s, 30s. Could you help me on that? Yeah, W.B. Du Bois is a very important figure, sometimes controversial in the history of black political thought. Yeah, but he too, actually, I think is increasingly appreciated as one of the great political theorists in the history of American thought, because he too, as you mentioned, was one of the first to point out that race and racism had always been an integral part of American capitalism, literally since the first slave ship landed on our shores in 1619. Right. So back to George Floyd and capitalism for a second. Is it the sense that right now the police are bearing the brunt of this effort because the institutional racism of capitalism has filtered down to the police level? I'm not so sure I would say they're taking the brunt of it so much as I would say they've always been the spearhead Uh, of institutional racism. You know, as the Black Lives Matter has pointed out many times, the modern day sort of professional police force began in the South for purposes of slave patrol, to hunt down fugitive slaves and to manage blacks that were in the community. So in a certain sense, the, the very existence of the modern day police force developed as part of the structures of institutional racism. And so, you know, that has to be dealt with as a fundamental component of any effort to address the problem 
if you want to take some time, I'd also like to just remind people, of, give some examples of what we mean by institutional racism in terms Please. of how this has been embedded in American Please. society. You know, I think one of the things that's important to remind people of is the history of so-called Jim Crow laws in the United States. Jim Crow was always a derogatory term that was used to describe black men in the South. And so that was the term that eventually was used to describe these laws. But literally, literally, as soon as the Federal Union ended Reconstruction in 1877 and withdrew Union troops from the Southern states, they immediately began to adopt Jim Crow laws to sort of reinstitute segregation and to sort of reestablish slavery by other means in 1877. And interestingly, we had just fought a civil war and there was a Supreme Court case decided in 1877 where they ruled that states could not prohibit segregation. In other words, that if states could not prohibit segregation in any private institution, and that was one of the keys here, is that they were saying that the federal government could prohibit states from doing things, but it couldn't prohibit private institutions from engaging in racist behavior, right. whether, and they gave a list of schools, hospitals, churches, cemeteries, restrooms, prisons, even. So that they instituted in 1877 the doctrine of so-called separate but equal, yep. that you could have segregation of blacks and whites so long as you provided equal facilities to blacks, of course, knowing that the facilities were never equal because the entire purpose of Jim Crow laws was to institutionalize and legalize the doctrine of white supremacy and to maintain blacks in subordinate positions. And just let me give you an example of, of how deep this went. In Birmingham, Alabama in 1930, they actually passed a city ordinance that made it illegal for a black person and a white person to play together any game of cards, dice, dominoes, or checkers, it was literally illegal for blacks and whites to play checkers together. You could be arrested for it, keeping in mind it would probably be the black person who got arrested right. for it. Also keep in mind, what did it mean to be black? Well, there was a long history of this in, in Southern law in which they actually detailed the amount of African-American blood yep. that you had. You were not considered white until you were 116th black. So literally it would take generations of intermarriage, which by the way was also illegal in the South for blacks and whites to intermarry until the 1960s. So essentially white was defined by law. It wasn't a biological category. It was a legal construct. And there were also court cases we could talk a little bit about, uh, if we have the time, uh, where as late as the 1920s, you know, late 1890s, 1920s, there were cases going up to the U.S. Supreme Court in which Japanese were defined as not white. The Chinese, by law, were defined as not white. There was a Hindu Indian which took a course, a very wealthy person, to the Supreme Court. Indians were declared as not white, and of course, Native Americans were not white. And what that meant for many of these during this time is that 
you could not become a citizen, even through naturalization, if you were not white. That meant in many states you could not own property. Many people lost millions of dollars in property that was confiscated from them by whites after the Supreme Court cases. It, of course, meant you couldn't vote unless you were a white non-citizen immigrant and you were allowed to vote right up until the 1920s. So what many people have forgotten is that there's a whole history here of laws and judicial decisions designed to really create an apartheid system in which whiteness was really associated with what the Supreme Court called in the 1920s the white Caucasian race, basically meaning people of Anglo-Saxon descent. And I'll go on to point out that you know, that often excluded Jews, were often not considered white. Southern Europeans, yep. even in the U.S. Census, the Portuguese were classified as black. Yep. So, so it was a very narrow definition of what constituted whiteness that was institutionalized in these laws. Okay. Why would capitalism, or why would the dominant economy at the time do that? Why wouldn't they have a big tent? philosophy and say, wow, there are all these people out there, the Chinese, the Southern Italians, everybody, the Japanese that you just mentioned, they comprise, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, even in some places, 50% of the population. Why don't we make them consumers? Why don't we give them, you know, houses? Why don't they buy things from us? Why don't we incorporate them into the economy? What would cause a capitalist society to govern itself in such an exclusionary manner that it cut out half the potential customers for a growing economy. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the argument you're making actually is a very standard neoliberal argument. It's made by Milton Friedman, uh, you know, the sort of the godfather of neoliberal economics in his book, Capitalism and Freedom. He has a chapter actually on racism and discrimination in that book. And, and his argument is if government would just get out of the business of race, the market would eliminate racism because he makes the argument that, mm. that capitalism has a vested interest in promoting the best talent, in generating a large market, and that as a consequence, the marketplace will eliminate racism of its own accord. That's, that's the standard argument. Well, we know, of course, in fact, that doesn't happen, and it hasn't happened, and that, in fact, the opposite has happened historically, and you might ask yourself why. Well, part of it is because capitalism is not just an economic system. It's also a political, social, and cultural system. Now, from an economic level, you have to say, if I can create the rationalization, well, first, let's back off and say in Marxist theory, remember, that profits, interests, and rents are the surplus value extracted from workers who produce the wealth. So the argument would be if you can create an ideological rationalization that justifies paying certain classes of workers less, whether they be women, blacks, Hispanics, or Asians, then of course your profit level will increase because you can extract a greater degree of surplus value from those workers. Wow. And even better, if you can convince the white workers of their superiority to enlist in that system of domination and control. So that's one aspect of it. The other, of course, is the political component. As you mentioned at the very beginning, if you can institutionalize divisions within the working class, then in fact, you weaken that class's ability to challenge capitalism. 
You know, there's a very important book by a Greek-French political theorist, Nico Palantzis, called Political Power and Social Classes. And in a snippet, he says that the role of the state in capitalist society is to organize the capitalist class and to disorganize the working class. <laughs> and that is the way it reproduces and maintains this system of domination. And Jim Crow laws and all forms of institutionalized racism do exactly that. They unify and organize the capitalist class while systematically disorganizing the working class. Okay. There's another contemporary book out right now that I just want to mention to our listeners. It's called The Sum of Us, and it's by a black economist lawyer named Heather McGee, who has amazing credentials as a uh, political analyst. She wrote this book after spending a year traveling around the United States. And I'm just going to give you one small quote. It's just out now. We have inherited a zero-sum mentality from history. White people fear that helping black people will create a loss for them. That is, you know, as contemporary as you can get, it's out this week or last week or something like that. So people are aware now that this really is creating a blocked economy. But now I see corporations waking up to this. It's funny that the capitalist class isn't united on this because a lot of corporations, it goes back to the Benelton ads, you know, of like 20 years ago where they showed these you know, multiracial people from all over the world and their ads for their cotton jerseys sort of saying they're all our consumers. You know, everybody can buy these things. And these people are great. Look at them. You know, they're smiling. They're happy. They're all getting along. You know, when you look at ads today, you frequently see, you know, middle class and happy, you know, African-Americans and other racial minorities in positions of happy consumerism or whatever. So it looks like part of the capitalist class has woken up to the fact that, you know, there's money to be made by bringing these people into the economic system. How does that reminded me of that old Coca-Cola ad. Yeah. We, kind of, we are the world. Yeah, it's, certainly it's the case that the capitalist class is not and rarely is completely unified on anything. And I think political theorists have long argued in the United States that there's tends to be a split between what we call the corporate liberal wing of the capitalist class and the ultra-conservative wing or the free marketeers and the neoliberals. They've been fairly united with each other since the 1980s and the election of Ronald Reagan. However, the corporate liberal wing tends to always pull back at the point where they think the system may be threatened by having gone too far. And I think there certainly is an element of the capitalist class who's saying, you know, we pushed this too far. We've sort of let the renegade, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Rand Pauls and the Paul Ryans and, and sort of these crazy libertarians push this system to the brink. And we now need to rein it in in order to restabilize the system. And I think you will see some of that. And you're absolutely right. In many ways, as good Keynesians, they will see the benefit of expanding the market and of bringing more people into the capitalist system. So we're going to continue to have that debate. But I, I really want to go to the point you made from the quote. Two things to say about that. One, as I mentioned earlier, is that a lot of the best Marxist scholarship on race and capitalism is being produced yeah. right now mm -hmm. and, it, and by African-American scholars. And it's probably no accident because great political theory gets produced at times of crises in response to those crises. So it's probably no surprise that we're seeing a plethora of works on this topic being wow. produced at this point uh -huh. uh, by Marxists, not by Marx himself. The second, though, it's a very you know telling point that she raises here, which is is absolutely correct. 
you convince whites that if you elevate African-Americans or other minority groups to the status of equality, it somehow comes at your expense. And in some respects, the system has been orchestrated and designed to make it that way because the tax burdens are regressive, the distribution of benefits is asymmetrical, and it sort of, again, it's almost as if social welfare systems and systems of assistance and equality themselves reinforce the division between black and white, when if people would just look in the other direction and say, wait a minute, Jeff Bezos just spent $550 million on a yacht. How many people would that feed? How many people would that send to college? There's plenty of wealth in this country, but instead we create this zero-sum game within the working class and forget that the real wealth doesn't reside at the bottom of the social structure. It's all in the top 1%. Yeah, right. I have a feeling that many in the Republican Party right now are in a state of shock over the elections because they actually realize that the racial, what were formerly minorities, are now majorities in places like, you know, Texas and Arizona, Nevada. The demographics of the, quote, white working class are shrinking. And the demographics of the others, if you will, from, you know, Indians to African-Americans to whatever, are growing and taking over the demographic force in an incredible manner. You know, they're in a state of shock, even in Georgia, that the levers of power are being taken away from them. Yeah, and it's really a question of political mobilization. One of the interesting things, however, is that in some ways you have to draw a distinction between uh, the reality of white America and the myth of white America. You know, the United States, going back to its founding in terms of the people who inhabited this land, has always been a multiracial, in a sense, multicultural, multiethnic social formation White supremacy was embedded, institutionalized in that system through legislation, through Supreme Court decisions, through private initiatives and and the private business. So we constructed this system of white supremacy and then built a myth around it about white America, which never existed. And let me just give you a real simple example that's sort of dear to my heart because I teach a course here on Texas politics. You know, and we all have that image of John Wayne, right, and the white cowboy taming the West. Well, modern historians now have documented quite clearly that if you look at what cowboys looked like, it's estimated about 30 percent of cowboys in the West were African-Americans, you know, former slaves who migrated out West. Probably another third, at least, uh, were Mexican-American vaqueros. So the reality is, if you went to the old West that we've seen on television movies, It was already multi-ethnic and multi-racial. Probably no more than 30 to 35% of the cowboys were John Wayne white guys. Uh, And yet we, through the media, have created this imagery and this mythology of what the Old West looked like. It didn't look anything like that. Uh That's a really great example. Where do we go from here? What are the dynamics that you see playing out regarding capitalism and race right now in the wake of the George Floyd murder Well, for the first time, as we've mentioned, I I think you're starting to see people try to attack the problem of racism at an institutional level. The police reform legislation at the federal level is a good start, but that's literally all it is. It's going to require a continuation of the social movement, Black Lives Matter being at the spearhead of that. 
that's going to have to continue and it's going to have to continue for a very long time. But I think we also have to remember that there is a potential reaction looming on the horizon. We have elections coming up in 2022 and prognosticators suggesting there's a very good chance that Republicans could retake the House and the Senate in 2022. And it will be the Donald Trump Republican Party. It won't be the old Republican Party. These will be the white supremacists, the white nationalists, the proto-fascists. You have an incredibly conservative Supreme Court at this point with a 6-3 majority of conservatives. They could just as easily start overturning legislation, reinstitutionalizing Jim Crow. We don't know what they're going to do, but we're going to get a good taste of it, I think, over the next year or two. And as a consequence, this is not only a battle that is far from won. There's the potential for significant reversals in the near future. Wow. That will just create more social tension and potential for more anger and rage on, on you know, a lot yeah, of Yeah, I think parts. that's right. And thank God there'll be Joe Biden in command of the U.S. Army this time and not yeah. Donald Trump. Really interesting. Wow. Well, thank you very much. This area is extremely interesting, and I'm glad to hear that there are a lot of scholars and a lot of writers that are addressing race and capitalism from a fresh perspective and not the 19th century. That's really encouraging to hear. Thank you very much, as always, Professor Barrow. It was really, yep. really, really great. Thank you. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we would really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at OOTBwithJRusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, OOTBwithJRusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.